Welcome to the Mwango Capital Podcast. At Mwango Capital, we aggregate uh, key information on African capital markets through Twitter, Telegram, and our weekly newsletter called The Baobab. We also hold weekly discussions every Friday on topical issues on African capital markets, and we also engage in analysis and research and training. We look forward to another engaging conversation on our Twitter spaces. Uh, So join us there every Friday so that we can keep having quality conversations on African capital markets. Without further ado, welcome to today's conversation. Uh, welcome to our Twitter space today. My name is Eric Mokai. I'm the founder of Mwango Capital. For the past few weeks, we've been really grateful to have a lot of CEOs join us for conversations around how they manage the companies that they're running and share with us their business models and how they're transforming the areas of business that they operate in. So today we are very lucky to have Acon. But before that, I wanted to introduce our speakers, the CEO and CIO of Acon. First, I would introduce my co-host today, who's going to do most of the interviewing, Sud, who's in charge of tech and also helps us a lot with the Twitter space here. Sud, maybe you can introduce yourself. Good evening, listeners and everyone else. Uh, warm welcome to our very prominent speakers today. Looking forward to a very interesting discussion on understanding Acon from a different perspective. And I think a lot of people know Acon from being the company behind Quetu, which is a student housing, but there's a little bit more about Acon that we'd like potential investors to know about. I'm Sud, co-host at Mwango Capital, mostly focused on technology and startups and looking forward to a very interesting discussion. Welcome everyone and welcome the guests. So quick one, maybe you can introduce yourself. We'll start with the CIO and then the CEO. I'll go first. My name is uh, Raghav Gandhi. I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Acorn Holdings. I also serve as the Managing Director of Acorn Investment Management Limited, which essentially is my day-to-day role. It's the management of the two Acorn REITs that were launched at the start of this year. Acorn Investment Management Limited's role is to ensure that the REITs perform as per the target returns that we communicated to investors at the time of launch and ensuring that the underlying assets are performing up to the target. Targeted returns. Okay, welcome. The CEO now can speak. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you might be. My name is Edward Kirade. I'm the founder and group CEO of Econ Holdings, which basically is a development, management, and investment business focusing right now on student housing, but with the ultimate aim of building, a, a, you know, in the entire rental housing spectrum from students to young professionals and beyond. We are 20 years old this year, and I've been in this area of real estate for 25 years. Thank you. Maybe you could tell us about your journeys to being at Acorn. We'll start with Raga. Sure. I guess how I ended up uh, at Acorn is more relevant uh, than for Edward, who basically started the company. I've been a real estate professional for now 15 years. I started my career in real estate after business school, after my MBA in the US. But so during the past 15 years, I've worked across a number of geographies, primarily emerging markets. I worked in India for seven years, and then I was based in the Middle East and North Africa for about four and a half years before I decided to try out my own startup venture and also do some consulting along the way. My startup venture didn't fructify, but I was fortunate enough to meet Edward during one of my consulting trips in London 
And this was in January 2020. And that was the time that Edward was looking to establish the Acorn Reeds. We connected and it was just something that I think we felt that there were a number of synergies. I started working in Acorn as a consultant at the start of 2020 before I then transitioned into the full-time role that I'm currently serving. Edward, how has been your journey to starting Acorn? I started as an architect 25 years ago. And I worked for one of the fairly large architectural firms in Kenya, Triad Architects, for five or so years before I went to England, to the University of Reading, to pursue a program in real estate and project management, and then came back and in October of 2001, set up the precursor to Acon, then known as Consultia, which was a consulting project management business. And we were consulting for the clients of the construction industry, various corporates. And in 2006, the name changed to Acon. And we continued doing project management for third parties, but we also started doing our own developments. And at that time is when we did the Coca-Cola head office for East Africa. We did the Deloitte head office for East Africa. We did the current equity head office and a number of other projects, primarily for our clients. But we also started doing our own development. So we did residential, commercial office, retail, and we continued on that journey until 2015 when we partnered with Helios Investment Partners, which is one of the largest private equity funds investing across 37 countries in Africa with a $4 billion portfolio. And we decided to pivot and focus our business on doing rental housing, starting with rental housing for young people and initially for students. And we decided that that's the space we would build this business around going forward. That's what we've been doing for the last six years. Thanks for this, Edward. Acon is a Kenyan company. At least if you look at its origins, you look at the founding team and at the cusp of taking off with Africa-wide ambitions. When most people look at Acorn and they look at the involvement of Helios and whenever PE money is involved, people always say this is a foreign company. How important has it been for Acorn to have this Kenyan identity? For starters, we've been owners of our own properties for the last 16 years. So as I said, from 2006, we moved into development and we started developing on our own balance sheet. But one of the things that attracted Helios to Acon was the local ownership and local knowledge. Real estate as a business is a business that requires significant local knowledge for you to succeed in. And for them, that was a very key and attractive thing. And I think the reason that they felt they could put their capital to back a local team in a space that is still very much a pioneering space. When you talk about purpose-built student accommodation, it's really in its infancy in this part of the world. We are the first such operator in sub-Saharan Africa. And local knowledge, local know-how was very critical. But remember, if you've ever dealt with private equity, the best private equity funds will tell you that what they do is try to back a management team that they believe can deliver on a strategy. And so for them, they have the capital because so capital is not the issue. It's about is their management team capable of delivering on their strategy? And that was what I guess was important. And it so happened happily that it's a local team. I know you started off, as you said, as a consultancy, but now what's the business model? How does Acorn make money? First, we have three key businesses, and then we have our holding as investors in the investments that we do. So the first business we have is the development management business. That existed before Helios, and that was the business that we had created in 2006. And so by the time they came on board, we had been doing this for nine, ten years. 
and that development management business is the one that oversees the projects that we do from acquisition all the way to the day they're ready for occupation through all the processes of design, statutory approvals, and construction. And so that business is one of our businesses. The other business that we have is the property operations and and management business, which is basically the team that takes over from the development business to run these properties. These properties are worth nothing unless they can be operated at a profit. So that means driving what we call the net operating income. And the property ops team are responsible for driving the net operating income, for keeping customer satisfaction high, maintaining the buildings for the long term and managing them so that they remain first-class buildings for a long time, etc., etc. And then we have the last business, which is the investment management business, which is the one rug of heads, and that's the one that's responsible for running and managing the REITs and has a REIT management license from the Capital Markets Authority. All these three businesses, they earn both management and performance fees for delivering on the services that they deliver, which are critical. The REITs would not be able to deliver any results without the three businesses. So these are the critical businesses. In addition, in all our property portfolios, we are also significant shareholders. And of course, therefore, we are able to enjoy the dividends that come from being shareholders together with the other third-party investors. And that, I think, is what sets us apart that we are always significant investors and sponsors in any of the REITs that we, we put up. How do you finance your projects? Uh, I know Helios is a major partner in this. So how's the ownership structure looking like? Just give us a, a structure on how the ownership model looks like at Econ. Being a private company, I can't get into all the details, but let me start by saying when we got on our current journey of rental housing. You've got two challenges, basically, in rental housing and trying to do it at any significant scale. The first thing is, how do you create a sustainable financial capital structure for the long term? That's one of your first challenges. Your second challenge is when you're now a landlord to thousands of students or young professionals, how do you manage all of that properly? When Helios came on board, we already had the development management business. What we didn't have is the property operations and management business and the investment business, which were established to address those two challenges. The property ops team, as I've said, is to fill those buildings, keep them full, run them profitably, etc., etc. Now, the other side is the capital structure. How do you create a sustainable capital structure? And that is where the REITs became very crucial to our business model and how we finance our development. So as you probably know, we've got two REITs, a development REIT and an income REIT. So the development REIT is focused on building the student accommodation from land acquisition to completion. Once they are completed, filled and stabilized with the occupancy, they're then sold to the income REIT. And that has all to do with the capital structure because what that allows us to do Within the development rate, it allows us to leverage debt into the development. So we build typically on a either 35, 65, or 40, 60 equity to debt uh, ratio. And that's where the green bond came in. The green bond is really a debt vehicle to fund the debt requirements in the DREIT. And then we have equity in there from ourselves and other institutional investors who are shareholders in the DREIT. That's how we fund the development side. Now, 
the challenge and why we had to create an income rate is once you develop and stabilize these assets, you need to unlock your initial capital, your equity, plus the debt so that you pay off the debt. Then you use that equity and your profits to do more development. So that's why we came up with an income rate, which buys these assets, becomes the exit vehicle for the development rate, buys the assets, and then holds them in the long term for rental income and capital appreciation. And they are reinvestors who that is what they are looking for. They are looking for a de-risked asset that is earning income and generating a dividends. One of the things we, we do is that for the income rate, we do not put any debt in there. So it's 100% equity held. And that means that it has no borrowings. And the reason we do that is because like in most of Africa, in Kenya, we have an inverted market where you have a situation where debt is more expensive than the rental yields, which is a rare phenomenon. You can only observe it in most of Africa. In the rest of the world, debt is always cheaper than rental yields. So you can layer in debt into income rates. So you'll see most income rates in the world will carry a significant amount of debt. That's not possible in Kenya. But on the other hand, there are specific investors who like those assets. They are de-risked. They are rental earning. They get capital appreciation. And later, we'll talk to you about VUCA, which is really a way to bring retail investors into in income rates initially. And that's an innovation that we have introduced in the Kenyan market. When you're trying to do what we do here in Africa, you've got to really innovate. Nothing is straightforward. You've got to come up with uh, unique solutions to, to the challenges that we face. Great. I wanted to dig a little deeper with Ragav on the rates and maybe explain to the audience what is a rate and then how it is structured. The REITs stand for uh, Real Estate Investment Trusts. And these are typically unincorporated vehicles, at least in the Kenyan regulation context. And as Edward mentioned, globally, typically they own and operate income-producing real estate. So what you might find is in more established REIT markets, such as maybe the US or the UK or continental Europe, you could have like office for REITs or industrial-focused REITs, like for warehousing or even apartment-focused REITs. So they have kind of like a set investment focus. Sometimes you also get multi-dimensional REITs as well, but a lot of times the sponsors or issuers choose to dedicate REITs to a specific sub-asset class. The uh, REITs were actually, they were formed in the U.S. in the 1960s. Actually, from a global perspective, they are quite an established investment product. Although in Kenya here, we still consider them as an immature and underexplored asset class. As some of you might be aware, there's actually only three REITs in Kenya, and two of them were launched this year by us at Acorn. So still a long way to go. Essentially, through securitization, REITs offer investors access to real estate. But the great thing is that it provides access without those typical barriers to entry that are associated with property ownership. Because buying a building, it comes with a large price tag. It has certain liquidity constraints. But whereas you can buy a REIT, which owns that same building, and you can get into that REIT for, let's say, acquiring units at 20 shillings each. So it's a different kind of setup, which enables greater access to a wider market 
than one typically sees in real estate. The other thing I'll just add is, and Edward touched upon this as well, is that the unique thing that we have in Kenya is that you have regulations for what is known as a development REIT. So typically REITs hold a steady state income generating buildings, right, that already are occupied. But in Kenya, the Capital Markets Authority, in another form of innovation, introduced uh, something called a development REIT, which enables the development of projects within a REIT structure, because REITs inherently have certain advantages, particularly on tax incentives. And I would assume that they felt that to promote further development, particularly to, let's say, address the housing gap that exists, the affordable housing gap, by putting a development vehicle within a REIT structure, it might prompt greater development to plug that housing gap. Still on REITs, I've got a two-sided question, but I will start with a question directed to Edward. Now, REITs are relatively new in, in, in Kenya. Obviously, there's a lot of investor education that needs to be done. What do REITs do for the average Kenyan investor who traditionally has been investing in land in one way or another over time? Let's start with the capital markets. I've been now involved uh, due to the work that we've done over the last few years, probably over the last four years, in studying capital markets globally. I've had the privilege to be invited to the world's top capital markets, whether it's London, New York, and to understand what capital markets and the vital role that they play uh, in doing investment, leave alone just in real estate, even in other in infrastructure, in other alternatives, in fixed income, in equities, whatever, you name it. First and foremost, the capital markets are extremely vital to the financing of the growth of any country and also to the building of wealth in that country. If you look at the U.S. capital markets, they have played such a central role in America's development and even the growth of wealth uh, in America. So one of the things uh, we've got to take away is that we must really build our capital markets. In fact, if we were to build efficient and well-functioning capital markets, we would not need a shilling of FDI. We would not need a shilling of grants or aids from anyone because we can mobilize and aggregate a lot of capital in our own local context using the capital markets. So it was a no-brainer that if we are going to build the largest rental housing portfolio in Africa, we've got to go to the capital markets. And that's exactly what we've done. And by and large, everybody is beginning to understand that. When I first muted to various advisors and partners that we were going to do a bond, uh, everybody thought that I was smoking something because uh, the Kenyan bond market was completely toxic, it was paralyzed, it was not moving anywhere. But when you look at what happened to the bond market, there was nothing wrong with bonds. It was just the way it had been done from issuers to issues with issuers, issues with regulators, issues with advisors. And it was done wrongly, but that didn't make a bond not workable. And we went to market. And what's been interesting in the two years since the bond market has just completely rebounded and people have begun to understand that there was nothing wrong with bonds. It was just uh, the way it was being done. And you can see the kind of capital 
that can be mobilized in the capital markets, uh, in the most recent bonds that this year alone, every, I think every single bond that has been launched, almost every single bond has been oversubscribed uh, and it's getting even more oversubscribed. That just shows you the power of the capital markets. Now, when you come to real estate, the most appropriate vehicle within the capital markets to do real estate is REITs. They are tax efficient, they are regulated, and they are transparent uh, vehicles. And I'm excited about this journey into the capital markets because the more we look into the capital markets now, even with a retail product called VUCA, the more we are seeing it's such a massive opportunity for this country to mobilize capital. And just like the bond market, I personally expect, I was the founder chair of the REITs Association of Kenya, and I personally expect that in another few years, we are going to see that space develop even much further. We've spoken with the regulators. We have said the key is to keep making sure that issuances in this country are good quality issuances so that we build confidence in the capital markets because it is our future. Kenya, we estimate, is a one trillion shilling capital markets per annum market. We can really grow. And there's nothing that demonstrates that in the real estate space then the amount of idle land or plots that Kenyans hold in the Nairobi metropolitan area, it is almost 12 trillion Kenya shillings, $120 billion. Our entire country's GDP per annum is less than $100 billion. So we are holding idle land and plots in a huge amount of money that is not generating the kind of returns you could generate if it was sitting in the capital markets. We need to unlock that uh, capital in the coming years. And I guess that's a good segue to go into your second part of your question, which was about we've seen people come unregulated. The The real estate sector is not regulated in itself per se. So it's a graveyard. I've been in it, I told you, for 25 years. I've watched the companies. They come, they launch, they go. They come, they launch, they go. Because you got people who, they're not even developers, but they've entered the development space. I mean, I wouldn't think you would enter banking without being a banker. In any case, the Central Bank of Kenya would not allow you. But a lot of our people who are in the real estate business, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They're flying an, an aeroplane blind. It shouldn't surprise Kenyans that eventually this thing, the chicken come home to roost and the things collapse. And that is where now, things like regulated risks come in because the regulator makes sure that things are being done properly. In the case of a REIT, the assets are not even held by the REIT manager. They are held by a trustee. And in Kenya, the trustee has to be a bank by law. And a bank doesn't want to get sued by investors. So one thing you can know is they take a lot of precautions and due diligence in everything that's being done within a REIT. That offers a lot of protection to investors. And, and, and that's what I think we will need uh, to encourage because a lot of these uh, kind of private schemes and operators and businesses and companies that have come in, they just do their own thing. They lure investors with uh, huge uh, returns. And you see Kenyans have this innate love for real estate. So it's easy to get caught up, especially when you showed the kind of returns. And what everybody fails to appreciate is that amongst all business types, real estate is one of the riskiest and hardest to do. 
So that's why from you know where we sit, we would really like to see the, the, the regulated space for real estate expand. There is nothing we do, at least in our business, that we don't make sure that we are working within a regulatory environment. Because over time, it will build confidence. And that confidence will build our capital markets. And our capital markets are vital for the future of this country. Really good points that you raised there. I just wanted to pick your brains on two things. So one is about the bond that you raised. You structured it more as a green bond. And essentially, the company that came to market and kick-started this revival in the corporate debt markets in Kenya. Like last week, we had uh, EABL say they had a 345% of a subscription to their MTN. So what informed your going into the market and what kind of lessons and reflections did you come away with in issuing that fast MTN? And how did you structure yourselves in such a way that you can actually win the confidence of investors? And what are the issues that you found in the market from them? Capital markets, like banking, depend on confidence. So we went out to the market to understand what were their concern, the market concerns. And they were very uh, clear and they needed to be addressed because it had affected our market. I could talk of that bond breached seven new fasts for Kenya, so but we don't have to go into all of those. Let's just focus on how we restored confidence in the bond market. The first thing was the rating agencies. And I must thank the Capital Markets Authority for the amount of innovation we've seen within the CMA over the last five to six years. I know they've been bashed recently about some failed entities that were not even regulated, but we told the Capital Markets Authority that the rating agencies that were being used locally had lost credibility with investors. And the challenge we had in Kenya is that you could not bring the top rating agencies, Standard & Poor, Moody's, and those kind of people into the market because according to the way the regulations were written, the, the rating agencies had to have offices in Kenya. Now, the big global rating agencies don't have offices in Kenya because the business is still too small. We were able to engage the CMA and convince them to allow Moody's to do our rating, which allowed much more confidence. It was more expensive to bring Moody's. It took much more money, but they brought an international credibility. And hence, we saw people like Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund becoming the largest investor in, in our green bond, uh, purely because you have a very credible rating agency doing the rating. We, as Acon, were issuing a bond to introduce Acon as a credible issuer into the capital markets. But unlike someone like EABL, we had never previously issued any uh, a bond. So what we did is we brought in a credit enhancement, which basically gave investors a guarantee for 50% of their interest and principal. And then finally, we also made it the first fully collateralized bond in the sense that we offered security to the bondholders in the form of the same security we would offer a bank, which is a fast-ranking charge on the assets uh, being developed. And the package that we came with is what gave investors confidence that this is very different from the bonds that have been issued in the past. It has a Moody's rating. It's actually got a rating that's higher than Sovereign. And that was because there is a guarantee below it. It's a collateralized uh, bond. And all of these features is what made the bond attractive. So in every sector, even when we came to the REITs space, 
what we asked ourselves is, what are the challenges Fahari faced and why? Then, as we always do, we did a lot of research to understand then how do you overcome some of those challenges? What went wrong? What didn't work? And then once you know, we figured out, okay, this is how we do it. And as you saw from the interim results, we are already ahead of uh, performance in terms of the REITs. And even in the last six months, we've seen new investors coming on board. We've had now VUCA approved by the Capital Markets Authority. And for the first time, retail investors will have access into the investing in this sector. And I think finally, what I must say I guess because this forum maybe has my understanding, a lot of Kenyans on it. I do not understand how we have let the best companies in our country, which are listed on the capital markets, they are owned by foreigners. Foreign participation on the top 10 stocks in the Nairobi Stock Exchange, it's foreigners. If I look at our econ REITs, apart from econ itself, we have a lot of foreign investment in the bond. It's the same thing. We need to come as Kenyans and start participating in our company. They're the way to build wealth and they're also the way to grow our, our markets. But we must do it in the right way. Now, we can't say, oh, but that one failed, this one failed. True. But even in the US, Enron failed, Bernie Madoff, who owned guys, but they have not abandoned their capital markets. It's still where people build their wealth from because those are the exceptions. And I must say, whether it's the Capital Markets Authority, the RBA Retirement Benefits Authority, the IRA, there has been so much improvement in our regulators. They have become so much better at it. So it's not easy today to get around the regulators with something that's not kosher. It's quite difficult, and we've seen it over the last few years. Those are really good points that you raised, that even though we've been hurt in the past, we shouldn't stay away from our capital markets. They're still the best way uh, to make wealth tapping into the bond market going forward. Thank you. I certainly see us being a fit just like EABL, a, a very regular participant in the bond market. I think we want to let this current bond run its course, which I believe goes on into 2024. But we are organizing other alternative debt structures uh, because you don't want to 100% be reliant on the bond market. You want to have a diversified source of your debt. But certainly I see once this one uh, runs its course, we will be back to the market. I see us as a regular and almost permanent feature on the bond market in, in the future. You saw REITs in different parts of the world, and obviously in Kenya, they're a very new thing, although globally they're not new. I mean, in more developed markets, they're a common appearance. Now, in the case of Kenya, how do you go about structuring it? And then now you've got this new product called VUCA, which allows retail investors to participate, at least in the iREIT. Is, what's the thought process and what needs to be done in order to educate investors of this uh, investment opportunity? In terms of how you structure it, from a, let's say, a legal perspective, there are regulations that are in place that provide a framework that you work around. But even in our case, 
we worked with the regulations as a base, but definitely kind of added layers in order to provide more comfort to investors to ensure that they saw the level of transparency that we were willing to offer. One of the exercises that we undertook was we worked with best-in-class service providers, whether they be valuers, whether they be transaction advisors and legal advisors as well, in order to look at best practices globally. And uh, we did our best to implement the, the best kind of standards that we saw in order to make these REIT offerings not only fantastic for the Kenyan local market, but also offerings that would be able to stand their own ground in an international context. And some of the corporate governance aspects that we have instituted really speak to those global best practices that we've brought into play because we were very conscious that there is an element of providing investors that comfort that things are going to be done on an arm's length basis. Things are going to be done with the right processes and right policies in mind, right? Because ultimately, you've got a number of related party transactions taking place because the REITs themselves are Acorn. They're being managed by Acorn Investment Management Limited. You've got Acorn Management Services Limited providing development management and property management services. So it was very important for us to focus on the corporate governance side to go above and beyond what the regulations themselves specify to provide that comfort to investors. That's from a legal regulatory standpoint. In terms of structuring them from an investments standpoint, we wanted to differentiate ourselves in the sense that to be able to convey to investors that what we were really seeking to do was provide target returns which were comparable to other offerings in the capital market securities. And that's why the REITs were offered as a blended offering, particularly for institutional investors. So any investor coming in, if they're, let's say, arbitrarily speaking, they're putting in 100 shillings, for us, they would be putting in a 30% allocation into the Acorn Development REIT and 70% allocation into the Acorn iREIT, which would then give them a blended basket return over the long term of 18%. And that 18% is, as you would acknowledge, very much comparable to other offerings that are there in the capital markets. And so for us, there was a lot of thinking and a lot of research that went into how to structure this offering so that it, it was sustainable. It was not just for a short-term horizon, but sustainable over a long period because this is a platform, this student accommodation platform that the REITs are focused on is very much scalable. It's an opportunity for investors to come in into a growth sector that is largely untapped. Our market research indicates that this is even currently the addressable market for our product offerings approaches. It's about 100,000 beds currently, and we're only providing 3,000 beds currently. So there's a huge scope of growth. So for us, when we were even structuring it from an investment standpoint, it was important to show to people that we ourselves have that confidence that our payout is based on outperformance that we deliver to them. And I think that's what also gave a number of investors and continues to give new investors that level of comfort to come in and invest into the Acorn REITs. Perfect. I just wanted at this point to ask the CEO directly from your 25 experience in the real estate market in Kenya, what are some of the lessons and reflections you've had in terms of what makes for a good real estate investment so that people don't get uh, burned? And what are kind of the habits that are peculiar to Kenyans that you've seen in the real estate markets, which may not be optimal? 
Well, there are lots of common mistakes. Let me try and talk about three or four basic ones. So number one, you have to look at what you're investing in. What is the underlying demand for it? Whatever it is, whether it's commercial offices, whether it's retail, whether it's rental housing, you've got to look at the underlying demand. It's a pity that's not well done in our country. And It's more of a pity because the data is there. Kenya Bureau of Statistics, World Bank, and others publish annually very detailed reports about the macroeconomic and demographic data of our country. So, for example, 75% of our population is under 35, and less than 2 to 3% of the working population earn more than 100,000 shillings a month. So... When we go and put high-rise luxury apartments because we saw them in Dubai, I really don't know what comes upon us. Of course, we want to be like Dubai, but Dubai is being driven by other factors that we do not have in East Africa or in Kenya in particular. So if you go and see a beautiful tower and you go and see Imar, who are the largest developers in the Middle East, who are people have visited on a number of occasions, their drivers are very different. So you see a nice, beautiful block there has been sold in two weeks. And you say, okay, now we're going to do this. If we do this, we'll sell in Kenya, there are people with money. Where are those people? When less than 3% of the working population of 15 million in Kenya is earning less than 100,000 a month. Another controversial topic, when we say we are going to do affordable housing, it bothers me a little bit because uh, a lot of this affordable housing is for sale. And then if you have a population that's under 35, how are you going to convince a 25-year-old to buy a house right now? I don't care how affordable you make it. Our demographics, in other words, do not support that kind of investment. Neither do what we call the urban incomes. What people earn doesn't support that there is a big market there. So looking at data to understand the best spaces to invest in is a common mistake that is made. So a lot of people are investing by gut feel or following the other guy who's done it. And I heard he made a lot of money. I suspect it's the single largest error in real estate investing and where people are losing money. When you put 450 apartments up and you say you're going to sell them, it's just difficult to find buyers. It's not easy. They're just not there. They don't exist. However much we might slice and dice that anymore, it's going to be a very tall order. You can sell, of course, but just be aware that it's going to take you five or six years to sell off that. A lot of real estate development in our country, it's not driven by the fundamentals. It's driven by another of n number of reasons and it doesn't help that for the 10 years between 2001 and 2011 because of the pent-up demand that had come up due to the lack of investment during the previous 20 years there appeared to be like a lot of demand for apartments and houses and all of that but it was not deep demand it was quickly met And so people have struggled in that particular space. Then the second one, it's how people finance the projects. How do you fund an investment that takes three to four years with money that is for three to six months? I mean, even if you're a magician, it's going to go wrong at some point. So you've got to match your capital to your investment horizon, what it's going to take for you to build. So I've watched countless people get in and lose their money just because they've used short-term money to try and fund a medium-term investment, which real estate by its inherent nature is. And I think the final one is... 
it never ceases to amaze me how even a high school teacher is a developer, an insurance sales agent is also a developer, a bank executive is a developer. So every Tom, Dick and Harry believes that they can do real estate development. It looks deceptively easy when you look at it. And so, as I said earlier, it's a graveyard because you have all these guys who came in. And what makes me more surprised, Kenyans just put all their money behind this type of investments. I don't think there's any way in the world you'll be allowed to go to JKI and fly a plane to London if you're not a trained pilot. But in real estate, it's the one key sector where anybody wakes up and tomorrow they're a real estate developer. I think if I stop at those three, you get the picture. You've raised very good points, Edward, and I think it's it's high time people rethink how real estate is done in the country. Otherwise, the chaos is only going to be more and more. But, uh, you know, onwards to the next topic of discussion, this will be directed towards Raghav. It's on VUCA, which is, this is Acon now playing in the fintech uh, space. And this is usually a space that's dominated by very young and hip tech startups. But Acon is taking a dig at this. So what is VUCA and why? Yeah, I mean, just because we're in real estate doesn't mean we can also be young and hip. But in terms of VUCA, as was mentioned earlier, it's a very innovative platform that we've worked on for a few months in order to launch it just over a month ago. It involved a fair amount of collaboration with a number of stakeholders, including the CMA, which provides a platform through the sandbox regime to incubate new ideas and particularly where Uh, there might not be existing regulations in place. I guess that's the kind of wider context for how or in what space VUCA was set up. But in terms of what VUCA is specifically, it's a retail aggregator platform, which essentially gives retail investors who typically would not have access to capital market securities, in, in particular, such as the Acorn iReads on a regular basis, it gives them access to this offering, which I think is a massive opportunity, not just for us, but for the capital markets and also for other issuers as well. Because as we've spoken about, a number of developed markets growth has been predicated on being able to give retail investors the access to capital markets because that's where uh, a lot of the capital lies and and I think that that's something that's been recognized by the CMA and that's why they've been very keen to work with us on, on this platform so what VUCA essentially is it's centered around a technology platform that provides retail investors the ability to transact and acquire units into the Acorn iReit. And then on the basis of the transactions that they carry out, they can actually monitor their account, monitor their investments amount to. It gives them that transparency uh, on a real-time basis. And it's not just about acquiring, but it also has the inbuilt flexibility to be able to trade in and out depending on one's circumstances. Of course, what we do uh, recommend is that investors remain in invested for the long term because REITs are investments for the long term horizon. But we also appreciate that people's circumstances can change. And so therefore, there might be times where they maybe perhaps need to look at divesting. But as opposed to other types of, let's say, savings products or insurance products that are out there in the market, the benefit that investors have of VUCA is that they don't get penalized for, let's say, stopping to contribute or divesting at any point in time. It gives them the flexibility to come in as and when they please. In terms of its accessibility, the one thing that I'll add is that 
that for as little as 50,000 shillings contribution a year, people can have access to the Acorn Irie, which is, of course, a very a stable, predictable investment opportunity because it's it's predicated on investments in uh, steady state operational buildings. And the for for investors coming in the through VUCA into the Acorn IREIT is that essentially you have the opportunity to be a, a landlord, a, a property manager, all at the same time for as little as fifty thousand shillings a year. In terms of the setup for VUCA, I've mentioned the minimum investment. We have a number of kind of member categories that enable you to even invest more than a million shillings in any given year. But what you also have is the ability not just to contribute on a lump sum basis, but you can also contribute on a monthly basis. So you can kind of build up your contribution over time because it's like building a nest egg. It's building your savings pot. What we recommend is that retail investors should be looking at contributing about 10% of their income into VUCA. The last thing that I'll also add is I, I mentioned about the stable income generating feature of the Acorn iReach, which is the vehicle that VUCA members invest in. The other benefit that VUCA members have is that the Acorn iREIT is set up to pay a dividend twice a year, essentially every six months. And that is part of the regulations as well, which again should give additional comfort to investors because regulations themselves specify that every year a minimum of 80% of distributable income has to be paid out as dividends. So you've always got that surety as a retail investor that there's there's going to be some money coming your way, some constant flow of money. Now, ideally, the way we recommend it, if you can help it, is that you reinvest those dividends to grow your savings pool. But again, maybe you need something a little bit for a rainy day. So you have that assurance that every six months you're going to be getting a flow of dividend payout. And I mentioned that the regulations specify that it's 80% of distributable income that has to be paid out. In our case, we'd be looking at a minimum of 90% and probably kind of getting closer to 95 that we're going to pay out. Well, uh, thanks for that. This was very elaborate. But just a quick question before we open up to questions from contributors and the audience. Is the platform live? And if it's not live, when is it expected to go live? No, it's very much live. We've got uh, a number of team members who've worked really hard to implement the technology platform. It's available. You can access it on vuka.co.ke. So you can go to the website and uh, read up about it. Uh, The way it is structured, it is invite-based membership. But uh, once you input your details at the website, then there will be a a sales executive who will reach out to you to speak to you more about VUCA and provide more details on any questions that you might have. But very much operational. And we've already been able to secure a number of members. And actually, we've also executed the first trade as well. So all systems go. All right. So I think at this juncture, I'd like to invite our favorite contributor and supporter, Tim, who inadvertently also is in some of the spaces that Acorn are operating, albeit in a much smaller scale, but I'm sure he's got a lot of interesting questions and thoughts. Thank you so much, so Eric and uh, the Mongo team. Edward, it was really great listening to you. I know that many folks will only see the years of Kwetu, but I know you've had a longer stint as a professional, you know, project manager and subsequently a mixed-use developer. My first question is, for the Ray to succeed as Econ, you must be able to meet annual rent 
escalation. Do you see yourself achieving that every year? Do you anticipate that you must at least exceed inflation? That's question number one. Number two, with the infrastructure bond that just came out, yielding about 12.7%, I know that over 10-year period, financial assets are likely to be worth less than real assets, like real estate. But does this worry you in the long run? When you look at the fact that your rate is likely to be yielding a little less now, but maybe a lot more in the long run. And then the third question was, were there any specific technical requirements that your project needed to meet for the bond to qualify as green? And then final one, what was the original inspiration for going to student housing? And what are your current biggest challenges? Thanks, Tim. Those are five questions, so I'll remember some, and the ones I won't remember, I think my colleague Raghav will remember. I think the first one is around rental escalation. Now, one has to understand what drives rent escalation. It's pure and simple market forces, and what are those forces? Supply and demand. As long as you have short supply and higher demand, escalations will happen. If you go to the commercial office space today, there are no escalations because there's too much supply, more than demand. So you must always wait the supply and demand metrics. That's what can tell you whether in the medium to long term you can sustain rental escalations. Now, in the space of student housing, you you asked why did we go into this space? The reason we are doing student accommodation and the reason we are going to do young professionals accommodation is that the gap between supply and demand is massive. There is a lot more demand than we can supply. That's why we end up with significant waiting lists in our building and in fact, we would say they're 100%. The only reason is because there are checkouts and check-ins due to the Kenyan University Stadium. You're going to have those voids that and you end up, but you'll still be you know, over 90%, 95% occupancy. And the simple reason is we have 550,000 students in university today. And even if we hit our target for 2030, which is to have 60,000 beds, it's going to be less than 10% of the student population at the time, which is expected to be about 750,000. And again, what's driving that? We have 12 million young Kenyans who are going to turn 18 over the next 10 years. That is data you can find in the June World Bank report. That's why I said we don't look at the data. The data is all they are telling us what's going to happen. Those 12 million young Kenyans are going to be looking for college, university, and opportunities. So it's a massive market. So you can expect that that's a segment where you can expect good occupancies, good rental escalation. But if you decide to put another shopping mall in Nairobi today or in Nanyuki or in Eldoret, I don't see where you're going to get your rental escalation from, given that there is an oversupply. So it's, a, it's driven by the same forces that drive the sale of soda, cigarettes, or or any other thing. I think you asked also a question about the bond and how come it was certified green. So this is what's happening. Globally, with the global warming that's going on, the biggest cities in the world will be underwater in 70 or 80 years' time. And the West has woken up to this. So the only way to mitigate it is they have decided that the deepest pools of capital will only be dedicated to projects that can help to slow down the warming. And so various standards have been developed. In the case of Acorn for our buildings, we use the IFC EDGE standard. Now that standard, once your building is certified, then they look at three things. Number one, consumption of energy. 
consumption of water and materials. Once you go through, which is really quite a rigorous process to check, how do you manage your water? How do you manage your energy consumption? How do you manage the materials used for building? And what is their net impact on greenhouse carbon emissions and various other factors? Then you get a certification. And it is with that certification that you take to an international body called the Climate Bonds Initiative, who are mandated to basically certify that the investment means the minimum criteria to be a green bond. So that not every Tom, Dick and Harry wakes up and calls their bond a green bond. They are based out of London, the CBI, there are others. And once you get that certification, you can then issue a green bond. So that's how it works. Most green bonds initially are issued by sovereign, so governments. If you look at Egypt the other day, they issued the first green bond, it's government. In Kenya, it was one of those unique situations where it's a private entity that has that issued the first green bond in country. But as you probably read in the investment sector, green finance, it's going to be like a, a box you have to tick before you can get global capital. And increasingly will be more important for global investors that you have this certification. It's what is called enlightened self-interest. They are protecting themselves from being... Can you imagine New York, London, Tokyo, Los Angeles, Amsterdam, all underwater in 80 years' time? So that's what's really driving. Raghav, do you want to take the other half of the questions? I'm happy to take the others, but we'll just ask Tim, maybe if you could just repeat them, please. The, the ones that were missed out? Edward, that's really insightful and helpful. Of course, the other thing is that they estimate now that the world needs 2 trillion square feet of space. And since our industry is the leading contributor now for carbon emissions as well as greenhouse gases, of course, then it's imperative that investors start to look green. And it's an exciting thing what you're currently doing. Maybe in future projects, especially where you're looking at buildings with large spans, you could consider technology that is now being used. And we've done it in one or two projects, which is called post technology. But the other final question was, does it worry you the government infrastructure bond is yielding 12.7%? Well, it's a bother because the government shouldn't be borrowing at those rates because it crowds out the private sector. But at the end of the day, as Raghav said, and I think you alluded to it, the thing that is different, for example, with REITs or VUCA against the government bond is that it is basically structured to hedge against inflation because those financial instruments as you said, like the government bonds, do not hedge you against inflation. They pay you high interest, but they're not hedging you against inflation. And over a long time, it's been shown that real assets are better at hedging you against inflation than financial instruments. But what for us is most promising and hence why we launched VUCA is that for most retail investors, they have lost so much money going into these schemes that people have launched here and there and also tied up in idle land. So I'm not telling you not to invest in the government bond. What I'm really saying, Tim, is if you can find a buyer for those Joska plots and Lucky Summer, sell those plots and get into something that will give you an income today. Hence the name VUCA, crossover, because the investments in government bonds, in money market securities, and other bonds, including uh, the EABL bond, the Econ bond, the family bond, that should continue. It should be part of any Kenyan's portfolio. And for 
for me, I think outside the, the work we've done to build ACON, I think my next mission in life is to get Kenyans out of those idle plots into the capital markets because that's where you can create wealth. You will never create it in a significant way in the way we are currently doing it. So I do not think that the government bonds are a substitution for REITs. Neither are REITs a substitution for government bonds. They are both required in market. They provide diversification for investors. And that's what they do the whole world over. So really, I don't think we should be saying either or. We need both. Even government bonds have their own challenges. We've seen recently Zambia defaulted on its uh, euro bond. Greece defaulted. So these are not risk-free investments either. We've seen sovereign default in the past. Argentina, there are many examples of sovereign defaults. We see these things as complementary within the capital markets uh, space. I hope I've answered your question, Tim. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for taking time. A lot of questions that actually flowed into our DM. So I'll start with Lian, who's asking, do, if a student is paying around 12000 per year in UN hostels, why would they come and pay 25000 for Kwetu Hostel? So I think in terms of affordability there, maybe you can speak a little bit to this listener. Yeah, well, thank you for the question, Eric. Uh, there are very many reasons, but let me start. Number one, the UON itself has almost 70,000 students. Yeah, they have 10,000 beds. Where will the other 60,000 uh, stay? If you've tried recently to go to the UON hostels, they're in terrible shape. There's, you're not safe, it is not clean. There's a lot of pressure because how much does the government give the university for maintenance of hostels? It's less than 2,000 shillings a month. How do you maintain a hostel for 2,000 shillings a month? And remember that it is, in a sense, regulated. The universities are unable to charge more. Recently, when the, the University of Nairobi tried to change their fee structure, they were shot down by a court of law. We have all these impediments that are causing challenges for the universities. They cannot meet the, the demand for student housing. Neither do they have the capital to do so. USIU has 6,000 undergraduate students. They have 200 beds. So how are they going to meet the need? One of our buildings costs at least a billion shillings to put up. Universities do not have the capital and the wherewithal to do so. Neither do they have the ability to manage these assets once they are built. Since the structure adjustment programs in Kenya in the early 90s that the IMF introduced, their funding for universities, especially on the accommodation front, went down dramatically. It's probably 5% of what it used to be. Great. I think that's a, a perfect response to the question. There's another question here. What's your take on land management challenges at the Ministry of Land and the impact it has on the real estate sector? Land is a huge challenge in this country. They have been trying to digitize and do a manner of things, but it remains a very big challenge. And it's a challenge that I'm not really sure what's going to be the, the, the solution. But obviously, then for us, we have to build capabilities to work around the, the challenges, whether it's the thing that you might be sold a piece of land that has five titles to when it comes to, you know, the registration process and the registry is closed for three months. There is a lot of challenges. Nobody should deny them. And in fact, they introduce a lot of risk to development. Fortunately, it's less risk when you're doing rental than when you're doing for sale. But it's still a huge problem which we have to confront. And part of why I said uh, real estate has its own significant risks when you're investing in the space. 
to deal with some of these challenges, then what advice would you have for general Kenyans who are looking to invest in this kind of space? And once I talked to Tim and one of the advice is that don't compromise on getting a good lawyer in the process of trying to secure a piece of land. Are there those kind of maybe tips and tricks that you can have for Kenyans as they look to maybe invest in this space? Yeah, Tim is right. You need a very good lawyer. You need to cross-check the documentation on land through multiple sources. So you need to check the records in lands, the records in the county, and any other potential source. Even the, the agencies, like the road agencies, they have a lot of this data. You know, Kenha, all of them, Kera. You need to check through multiple sources to really be sure that, that something is kosher because there's a lot of fake stuff in the market. There is also the question here, mortgage rates 13%, the rental yields are at 6%. How does it justify buying a house or a building? Eric, that's the one I don't have. I don't know how it justifies. Unless you're buying for emotional reasons, obviously it doesn't justify. It speaks for itself. And that's why I am concerned about the affordable housing as currently thought, because even if you bring rates down to 10%, residential yields are at, uh, as you said, 5%. It's, it's difficult to justify. I wanted to ask Ragal, why should people consider investing in rates? Maybe you can give us a perspective on the advantages of being in a rate. In terms of the advantages that you have, the main advantage is the tax benefit that REITs enjoy. They don't incur regular income tax. They don't rec- uh, incur capital gains tax. Obviously, that provides a boost to returns. The other thing I would add is that they are regulated structures. And I think that's very important. You yourself brought up the issue earlier of people getting negatively impacted by investments that they had taken on with other real estate firms. And typically those happen in unregulated structures. So by investing in a a regulated structure, you know that there's oversight from an authority who has that fiduciary responsibility to ensure that the issuer acts in the best interests of the investor. The other thing is that the difference between doing direct investing, let's say in a building versus investing in a REIT is that uh, REITs have embedded diversification benefits because a REIT will invest in not just one building, but will invest in multiple buildings, which have exposure to different markets different local markets, geographical markets. And therefore, if there's a shock to the system for one of the buildings, that is somewhat absorbed by the the other assets that are in the portfolio. And I think that's very different from when you have single asset exposure. If something goes wrong for, for that one building, then that pretty much wipes out all the value that you are gaining from that building itself. So these are some of the benefits that I can highlight for investing in REITs. All right. I think I kind of exhausted all the questions that I've seen in public. Uh, maybe if there are more, we can send them to you and then you can see to that. So I just wanted just to speak a little bit about the future. What next for Acon? Will you see you maybe investing in the private uh, rental sector? And what's the trends that you're seeing in student rental housing and in the real estate market that you'd want to share with us? Paint for us a picture for Acon. Maybe at some point in the future, we're seeing you listing Acon itself at the stock exchange. Yeah, thanks. I'm not sure about the listing bit, but uh, let me just say that first, we see a very exciting future for rental housing, focusing on young people in Kenya and even broadly in Africa, just purely because of the demographics. That's where the demand is. So we started with student housing. We've got Kwetu, that is our flagship brand. We're quite pleased that we are now launching yet another student brand called Kejani, which is even cheaper 
than Kwetu. We've got the first two buildings on site now coming on stream from next year. And that actually will be the bigger part of our student housing portfolio because affordability is a big thing when you think about the Kenyan and African context. So that's called Kejani. Then we definitely are moving into young professional space, hopefully from next year. It's just the natural sequence from these students after living with us at Kwetu and Kejani. Where do they go? So we are looking at next year and maybe in a few years time, what we call starter homes. But we are really just focusing on the rental segment. Right now, between the age of 18 to 35, that's where we want to play for the next 10 years. We see that as an exciting uh, space to be in. And then, of course, expanding our offering into the capital markets. As I said, if you look at the last 20 years, the banking and finance sector has been completely transformed by retail banking. In my view, the next 20 years belong to the capital markets and its transformation for retail investors to be able to participate in a big way. We have 15 million Kenyans working and less than 200 thousand participating in the capital markets. It's a big opportunity. It's a large opportunity to create wealth, but also to move investment into a space that will make a a huge difference in the coming years. So for me, I see the next 20 years as really being the expansion of the capital markets. We're already beginning to see that in the exciting developments happening in the bond market. And as long as we don't mess it up by bringing poor quality issuances to market, we need to make sure that issuances are good quality, they are backed by strong management, strong underlying demand for what is being done, then we will see our our market grow. But certainly what you've called the PRS or private rental sector is a natural space for us. We've been asked a lot, are we expanding into Africa, the rest of Africa? Similar demands exist in at least another dozen cities in Africa. Not for now. We are very much focused here. We can't even meet the demand in Kenya. So there's no reason really to go regional Africa for now. But who knows, in five years' time, that could change. But for now, we see very much that will be a Kenya-focused business. Nairobi is 60% of Kenya's GDP. That's where the biggest opportunities in rental housing are. That's where the rental pressure is highest. We just want to stay focused. So that's basically it with respect to a potential listing. So we see ourselves listing the REITs, certainly the income REITs, on the main market board later on, not right now. Uh, There's good reasons not to do so yet. And we see ourselves establishing new REITs, focusing on various segments of, of rental housing in the next couple of years. Why has the uptake on REITs been a bit low? And what needs to happen, at least in the markets, to shake that up? I'm not sure the uptake is low. We are less than a year in and we've been able to mobilize over 3 billion shillings in third-party capital. I don't know whether that sounds low, but every day we are seeing a new uptake coming up. Obviously, is there market education and people understanding? Yes, there's still a, a work to be done. If you looked at retail banking 20 years ago, it was almost non-existent in the sense that even the largest banks at the time were moving away from the retail segment. Today, it's completely transformed the market horizon. So we believe we are in the early stages of transforming the market, both the retail market, but also for the REITs. We are seeing very good uptake by pension schemes. So I don't know what information the person who asked the question has, but for us, we are very excited about the uptake. 
All right, so I'll ask both of you for closing remarks. I think we can start with Raghav and then go over to Edward. And I think as you guys go through your closing remarks, Acorn is no longer a small company. Now as you're trying to attract retail investors, what confidence are you putting out there that you're actually building the team that is going to take Acorn to greater heights? Uh, yeah, thanks. In terms of uh, addressing the vision that stands for the company and why it would be appealing to the existing team that we have or anyone joining is the fact that this is an opportunity to really make an impact in society, right? Acorn's reason of being is centered around providing affordable housing to the young people of Kenya, which is really where the dominant demand is. And as Edward mentioned, that's where you see the population bulge. You've got 75% of the population aged less than 35 years old. And that's really what you're trying to cater for. And what you're doing is you're providing an effective solution. We have very much accepted in our DNA that the way to provide that housing is in the form of rental housing for the reasons that have been discussed. We don't believe that the sale form of housing works in the affordable segment, which is where the most stark need lies. And really anyone coming into Acorn has the opportunity to participate in that growth story, in that social impact story. From a cultural standpoint, what drives us is that we are very much results-driven and performance-driven for real estate. The one thing I have from day one, when I started work in the industry, what I was told is that the number one thing that matters is delivery. That's what differentiates a good developer from a bad developer, is if you can actually deliver what you say on the tin. And in essence, from what you're hearing, from what we're seeing as well, that's something that Acorn has been able to demonstrate, not just for the past five years, but for the past 20 years. So it's an opportunity to kind of participate in a performance-driven and culture that's delivering real social impact for the country and beyond. Thanks for that. Uh, over to you, uh, Edward. Just want to say three things. Number one, building the kind of business that we have built and are building in Econ is actually an exceptionally difficult. Uh, it's 20 years in the making and there's still so much work to be done. The risks involved are significant. Uh, you need to attract significant capital into the space. We've mobilized billions of shillings into this space, both local and international. It's not easy to do and it's a massive barrier. And of course, attracting the right talent, which is a mix of local talent and international talent. People like Raghav, you know, we've got a number of expatriates in our business who we've had to bring in just to bring in the right experience, know-how, and talent to help us build the local capabilities. So it's not easy to do in, in the African context. And I look at our country since independence, how many multinational corporations has Kenya created since independence? Locally built, not government, not multinationals coming from outside. They cannot get to five. You get a lot of businesses, family-owned type businesses, but those that rise there, it's really not easy to do. However, what keeps me going when you have difficulties or setbacks or whatever it is, is just the impact that I see. Recently, I went to one of our properties and normally I go there kind of trying to keep a low profile and I was accosted by this student from Uganda who said, are you the CEO of Acorn? He started talking to me about what height has changed his life. And it was a bit embarrassing because I was with some investors. So I, I think the investors thought I had put him up to talking to me about what we are doing, but I had not. But those encounters are really how we have transformed. Students have been staying in squalor, for lack of a better term. And to see them now gain confidence, because those are the guys who will lead Kenya 
or Africa in the coming years. If they cannot experience certain standards, how do you expect them to build those standards in their time? So the impact on the young people, the impact on their access to education has been very, very satisfactory. And then, of course, as I said, I mean, the next phase of my life is really to bring ordinary Kenyans into the capital markets and to show them the benefits of the capital markets. And I think that journey has already begun and that impact is critical. When we talk about the environment, it is not cliche. We are genuinely in trouble. And if there is a way we can contribute to maybe creating a more sustainable future for our children and grandchildren, then I think that's worth the risks and the setbacks that one goes through setting up these kind of businesses. And then finally, of course, many people say you guys are doing student accommodation or you guys are doing capital markets, investments, but we don't see it that way. When we think about housing, we think about establishing communities. We see how these communities are sticky and it really helped us through the COVID season because our operating properties were well occupied and achieved operating profits even through COVID because it creates sticky communities of people who are like-minded with like values and lifestyles who want to enjoy their lives together and to us that's really the core of what we are doing and now we are beginning to do it for the investment community whether it's through VUCA a community of retail investors that are building their wealth and working towards financial freedom for us those are the things that are really driving ourselves on a day-to-day basis. And I'm grateful that we have a great team, very talented, very committed people who really deal with a lot of odds to make it happen and go out of their way. It's the team that really has got us here and will get us to the next level. Thank you very much, Raghav and Edward, for joining us this fine evening. And before we log off, we'd just like to thank our audience. And for those who are interested, the website for VUCA, which is the platform to get into the Econ Irits, is, I believe, there's a waiting list, or you have to get invited. The website is vuka.co.k. So that's V U K A. .co.ke. And last but not least, I'd like to thank the team at Mwango Capital and my fellow co-host, Eric Mokaya. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.